All right, so I have to tell you that my children, when they are babies, do not sleep. Now, I know this is a common experience. I'm not claiming to be unique in this respect, but my children do not sleep, and my wife and I disagree about why. My wife says, you know, it's not our fault. It's just genetics. You didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. There's nothing we could have done. I disagree. I believe that children can smell fear. And what happened was our first child sort of snuck in under the radar. We were completely unprepared for what a night with a baby could be like. And from sort of the first hour of the first night, it was game over. He had defeated us. And this set up the next child, his sister, to be able to look at us when we first held her, and she could see in our eyes, this is going to be a piece of cake. And the very first night, you know, we laid her down, and you sort of step away like this. And I'm telling you, right before she broke out into the scream that she did for the next three hours, I saw a little smile on her face. And then she started crying. And the reason I tell you this story is because the sleepless nights of my second child happened at a time when I was living in England, I was going to school there with my family, and I was studying this very passage. And so most of my thinking about this passage occurred while I was holding a crying, non-sleeping child between the hours of one and four in the morning, which on the one hand means whatever I think about it could just be bizarre, and two, um, that's sort of where I'm taken back to when I read it. And so what would happen is my daughter would wake up, and we lived in this very small English flat, and I would look for the longest stretch in the house to hold her in pace, you know, and I found that our kitchen was the longest. It was about 10 feet, and I would just walk back and forth for hours. And what happens is you start to have these thoughts that you didn't think it was possible to have. And because you didn't want to imagine that you could have these thoughts and because you love this child, you stop when you're pacing and you slowly sort of gently bang your head against the wall. And you're just doing it hard enough to try to sort of lobotomize yourself. You're not trying to hurt yourself, but you just want these thoughts to go away. And what would happen is I would be holding the child gently banging my head against the wall, and I would think about this passage, and I would have a kind of conversation with it, right? So I'd be there, and I would think about what Paul says. He says, none are righteous, and I would think, um, that's an understatement. Or he would say, no one understands, and I would say, it's three o'clock in the morning. I don't understand anything right now. You know, or he would say, no one seeks for God. And I would say, give me a break, Paul. I'm seeking one thing, and it's sleep. Or he would say, no one is good. And like Steve Brown, we heard, I would just say, bingo. You know, that's sort of where I was with this passage. It was telling me the truth about myself. And I first experienced this passage as a word of honesty. And as a word of honesty a word that tells us the truth, it reminds me of a recent headline from what, at least according to itself, is, quote, America's finest news source. I'm talking, of course, about The Onion, and if you know The Onion, it's the most reliable news there is, in my opinion. 
And this was the headline. It said, today, the day they find out you're a fraud. And then it offered the report. And I'll read you just a few lines. While experts agree you've been remarkably successful so far at keeping up the ruse that you're a capable, worthwhile individual, a new report out this week indicates that today is the day they finally figure out you're a complete and utter fraud. The report, compiled by the Pew Research Center, states that sometime within the next 24 hours, people will find out that you have no idea what you're doing, that you've been faking it for years, and through continuous lying and shameless posturing, you've actually managed to dupe virtually everyone into thinking you're something other than you are. They've had their suspicions all along, sources said, but today their suspicions will be confirmed. Though you've somehow gotten this far in life without anyone discovering you're not what you pretend to be, it's all about to come crashing down. And I read that headline in that article, and I thought it was almost a perfect description of the first thing that Paul says in these passages. Today, we're going to find out that we're all frauds, and we'll all be in it together, so it'll be good fun. But look at what Paul says in Romans 3.20, the first bit, Romans 3.20. He says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, when Paul uses that word, which we hear a lot around here, justified or justification, it's a word that comes from the law court. That's where it was used. And what it means is to declare someone is righteous, to say that they've kept the law or that they're innocent, that they're not guilty. And when Paul talks about this word, justification, what he's inviting you to imagine is the scene of final judgment in which God is sitting on the throne as judge and you're standing there finding out if you're guilty or not, right? And Paul says in the second half of Romans 3.20 that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so what he's saying is when we hear God's law preached, his holy and righteous and good law, when we hear be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, we get a sneak preview of our own future judgment before God. We get to watch it happen. And he's inviting you to witness the results. So let's go there with him. Imagine you're standing in line at the end of history, you and everybody else that's ever lived, and you're waiting your turn before the judgment seat of God. There's a lot of nail-biting going on. No one's really paying attention to anyone else. You know, they've sort of got their hand over their face because if you make eye contact, that'll be really awkward when your life goes up on the screen and you're thinking, oh no, I can't believe my mom's finally going to find out about that, right? And this is sort of the experience. And finally, it's your turn. And you look up for the first time and on a screen, you know, 10 times that size, a fully documented video, including your thoughts, your words, and your deeds, but a fully documented video of your life starts to play. And you're sort of watching, but God's watching it. And it's just your life. There's the good, and there's the bad. Right? There's that intense love you feel when you first held your child. 
But then there's those moments of intense anger that you felt when you were holding that same child at three in the morning. Right? There's images of all the sacrifice you made for your teenagers. But there's also those moments where it was just too much and you were screaming at them. There's pictures of those real friendships you had with your coworkers. But then there's also those episodes where you felt jealous when they got promoted or you said that untrue or unkind word when they weren't around. There's the times when you really felt love and respect for your parents and showed it. But you also have to watch again that lie that you were never able to confess to them. And maybe now it's too late. There's the support that you've shown to your spouse, maybe over a long period of time. But there's also those unfair moments when work was hard or the kids were hard and you took it out on him or her. It's just your life. It's all seen. There's laughter and tears and beauty and pain. There's smiles and there's shame. There's love and there's loneliness. Right? But it's all seen. Every secret is finally public. And God sees all this. He sees the happy he sees the hard, and he sees everything in between. And as he watches it, he sees your life. He laughs with you as you guys witness together that very awkward attempt you made in ninth grade to talk to the girl you liked. He weeps with you as you have to relive the death of that person that you loved so much. And as he reviews your life, he sees a life that's sometimes picturesque, sometimes painful, but never perfect. It's just your life. And so God, who is perfect, looks at you, probably with holy tears in his eyes, and he tells you the truth, not righteous. You're not perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? That day that the onion prophesied, the day everyone finds out you're a fraud, it's come true. Look at Romans 2.13 with me just for a minute, the very end of Romans 2.13. It says, the doers of the law will be declared righteous. And now compare that with our verse from Romans 3.20, where it says, by doing the law, no human being will be justified. One verse says the doers of the law will be declared righteous. The other verse says, by doing the law, no one will be declared righteous. And that's because of what Paul's just said. That's because of what the movie of your life exposed. You're not righteous. According to the rules of the game, the game is over. And as Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But, that's Paul's next word, but, but our God raises the dead. 
and he loves to do his work when game over is flashing on the screen. And after this hard-to-hear word of honesty, Paul offers a word of hope. He has an impossible promise to proclaim, and it contradicts that desperate conclusion from Romans 3.20. Look at what he says in Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And he tells us what that looks like, what that righteousness is in Romans 3.23 and 24. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've got the honesty again in 3.23. He says, For all sinned. The honesty is still there. And in 324, it seems like we're in the same story, he says, and are justified. So he's now looking back to that scene of final judgment. But in this story, there's one all-decisive difference. And it's this different story that Paul's telling you this morning. It's this decisive difference, and thus this new story that God is telling you this morning. So let's go back there one more time. You're in line. You're waiting your turn. You're not looking up. The fingernails are disappearing, etc., etc. And now it's your turn, and you look up, and there's a big screen again, and there's God on His throne, and there's you with an awareness of the life you've lived. But this time, when your life starts to play, There's a baby born among animals. And there's a king in the area that wants to kill him. And so he has to flee with his family to Egypt. But he doesn't stay there. He comes back. He's baptized in the Jordan River by his strangely dressed cousin, John. He spends 40 days not eating and not drinking in the wilderness. He calls together a strange group of 12 uneducated men. And then he starts hanging out with people, prostitutes, tax collectors. He starts touching people with contagious diseases. He starts opening eyes that have never been able to see and unstopping ears that have never been able to hear starts welcoming people that everyone else have cast out. And because of it, they killed him. And he knew they were going to. And he cried. And he sweat blood. And he got arrested and beaten, mocked. They forced a crown of thorns onto his head. They made him carry his own piece of torture and execution to a hill so that when he got there, they could nail him to it. And he hung there. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died. And to be sure, they pierced his side with a spear, and then they took him down and put him in a tomb. But that tomb could not hold him. That grave is empty. 
And that life is the life of the one who is alive and sitting right next to the Father who's watching that life. And God watches that life. The life and the death and the life again of Jesus Christ. And he looks right at you. And he says to you exactly what he's saying to you this morning as he's looking at you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. Let's pray together.